A writer died and was given the option of going to heaven or to hell. She decided she wanted to check out each place first. As she descended into the fiery pits, she saw row after row of writers chained to their desks in a steaming sweatshop. As they worked, they were repeatedly whipped with thorny lashes. Oh my, said the writer, let me see heaven now. A few moments later, she ascended into heaven. She saw rows and rows of writers chained to their desks in a steaming sweatshop. As they worked, they were whipped with thorny lashes. Wait a minute, said the writer. This is just as bad as hell. Oh no, it's not replied an unseen voice. Up here, the work gets published. Da-da-dum. That's so good. It's so accurate. It's it maybe more of like the writerly equivalent of like Clapter, where it's like you, you say like amen. Right. It's and, not, it's you know, not like a raise. joke. It's like a cone or something. It's it's like a truism or a... Yeah, like a, or a parable or a proverb or something. Yeah. It, right. it clarified for me a a story that I heard as a kid in church, a priest told, told a similar joke about heaven and hell, which where, you know, somebody went to, to hell and it was these people at this horrible table trying to eat with these giant long spoons where they couldn't reach their mouths. And then the same situation was in heaven, except in heaven, the difference was that the people had a different attitude about it. Christians are the worst. <laughs> I love the idea of somebody imagining hell and they're like, like, all right, so everyone's at the table, but the spoons are too long, <laughs> right. you know, as they're like, like, that's the logical first step of hell. Like, that's the bad one, right? right. It's like, and then we go to heaven and we still got the long spoons. You know, it's like yeah. whoever is in charge of. Right. But the people, but and, and of course the, the trick is that in heaven, the, they feed each other, you know, rather than themselves. Right. The other, the other version I like is in, in a, Imagine a, how a gross. It would be to be fed by other people's giant spoons for eternity. <laughs> like that's the definition of heaven. Just like barely- like, no, I figured it out. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> it's like, oh, the side of my the inner mouth. Right. It's full of wounds. It would be it's like if all long, the only food you were able spoons. to eat for eternity was like your wife smushed wedding cake into your face at your wedding yeah. in front of a bunch of people with taking a pictures. giant at like six feet apart right. you know? well, like, like, while weeping and being lashed by demons i just love the idea of like christian metaphor where there's like a sweet man or a molesting man but like presumably your guy was sweet like sitting at his desk thinking like okay i'm gonna really get them to understand heaven and hell and they like get the prop master out. It's like, what do we have back there? It's like, well, we got these really long spoons. You know, it's like, okay. So hell is where you use the long spoons, but you're hungry. Heaven is where you're shoving food into each other's mouth with the same long spoons. But yes, it's like writing, except um, in heaven you get published. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Sometime this week, if you would, take a, take a moment to recommend the show to somebody you think might enjoy it. And that way, person by person, uh, word will, with any luck, spread. And I kind of like the idea of a show that uh, gets around by word of mouth only. It's, it's mostly what this has been doing so far, thanks to all of you. And let's keep it that way. Let's let's just tell the cool people about it. Okay, guys, let's just try to, let's think about it in those terms. 
only tell people about the show if they're the kind of people you want listening to the show uh, and hearing all of the dirty shit that I say every fucking week. Uh, this week, I have back yet again Brian Platzer, show favorite, <laughs> the cosmopolitan Brooklyn sex novelist himself. Uh, Brian is, as always, uh, cheerful and ornery. Uh, Brian and I talked about two short stories, one by Martin Amos called Career Move and one by Tom Dish called The Joycelyn Schrager Story. I'll have links in the show notes. We also talked about a passage that Brian pulled from W. Somerset Maugham's memoir, The Summing Up. And we talked just a little bit about the bad art friend. I, I had Brian do a little uh, summary of the article, but that ended up being kind of long. And I just figure there's been so much coverage of this and so many discussions of it. I went ahead and just cut that so that we just get straight to our dumb opinions about the piece. So if you, if you are completely unfamiliar with the whole bad art friend mess, I did include a link in the notes to the original article and uh, just check any other podcast from the past two months and uh, you, you should be able to find a pretty thorough recap. Let's get, oh, um, yeah, I'm not going to keep fucking introducing Brian. That's just ridiculous. You, you, I'll, I'll give a link to his uh, website and his Twitter handle is if memory serves B Platzer. You know who Brian is. I don't know if you you like looked back at any of the the uh, game six, but like among the other the longest game in the history of chess, like well, in the history of world champion. Chip yes. chess, I think, but but um, but like like a a really strong example of like one of Magnus Carlsen's, you know, one of the marks of his supremacy is that he's really really physically fit, and so in a game where like you know sixty years ago Mikhail Tal, who was like a hard drinking, hard smoking, you know, night owl, could be the world champion, he just he just where he like he sits he drags the game out until it is physically exhausting to sit in a chair and look at a chessboard and he his lasts a little was longer physically shaking right. in the chair right his body was was physically shaking i, I mean and and then you, you saw him begin to make mistakes like it it was wild absolutely wild amazing um yeah and then and then followed by the the shortest game at least in this match and the and the sort of the most boring draw yeah no Which but, everybody but, predicted right like everybody knew that nobody would have the stamina to do anything and they both just went through the motions and accepted a draw it seemed to me yeah oh yeah which is i mean like, and it was just like the the bad the bad luck of napomnichi that he that was one of his goes with the white pieces so somerset mom yes. in his end of life memoir is summing up he writes a lot about being very excited as a young man about art literature and, uh, and, and the visual arts and then he drops some cynicism on that excitement forgive me as i read we're probably a dozen sentences or so this will last the sentence or more than you wanted to but it ends um with a better punchline than than that joke i lived at this time in a group of young men who had by nature gifts that seemed to me much superior to mine. They could write and draw and compose with a faculty that aroused my envy. 
They had an appreciation of art and a critical instinct that I despaired of attaining. Of these, some died without fulfilling the promise I thought they had, and the rest have lived on without distinction. I know now that all they had was the natural creativity of youth. To write prose and verse, to hammer out little tune piano, and to draw and paint are instinctive with a great many young persons. It is a form of play due merely to the exuberance of their years, and it is no more significant than a child's building of a castle on the sands. I suspect that it was my own ingenuousness that led me to admire so much the gifts of my friends. If I had been less ignorant, I might have seen that the opinions that seemed to me so original were theirs only at second hand, and that their verses and their music owed more to a retentive memory than to a live imagination. The point I want to make is that this facility, this faculty, is, if not universal, so common that one can draw no conclusions from it. Youth is the inspiration. One of the tragedies of the arts is the spectacle of the vast number of persons who have been misled by this passing fertility to devote their lives to the effort of creation. Their invention deserts them as they grow older, and they are faced with the long years before them in which, unfitted by now for a more humdrum calling, they harass their wearied brains to beat out material it is incapable of giving them. They are lucky when, with what bitterness we know, they can make their living in ways like journalism or teaching that are allied to the arts. Jesus Christ, every time I read that. It is so spectacular. And that punch to the gut at the end that the real lucky ones aren't successful writers, aren't successful artists, but the lucky ones are the ones find with bitterness that they are able to make a living in careers like journalism or teaching, my career and your career, <laughs> that are allied to the arts. It's, it, it is so vicious. Yeah. It's like I used to think when I was a kid that people around me were talented, but I realized that everyone thinks that that what I saw was talent was just a bunch of dopesters playing with Legos. And I was impressed by their little Lego sculptures that all little kids play with. It was my ignorance that made me admire them. Not the possibility that they were good, but it's yeah. just my ignorance that made me admire them because all young people feel like they are capable of creating art, music, etc. And the real lucky ones are the ones who find careers like journalism or teaching that are tangentially allied to what I had originally thought myself and my friends capable of. I mean, in, in reading this, like one of the first thoughts I had, I, you know, like after just the initial wave of nausea was like, well, if this was a problem a hundred years ago or 80 years ago in Great Britain, how much more of a problem is it? Like, I think I thought of this as being a problem of our shitty, you know, like fall of Rome culture in America today, but apparently it was already, I mean, like, is that a, is that a, is that like presentism? Like, is that like, oh, things are always bad in the same way or, or is it just way, way more of a problem now in here? 
I think it might be presentism. Okay. And the reason I think that because I can think of a few examples where everybody as young men and women, but presumably men, um, are like, I can't believe we're all here at one time creating such magical works of art, mm -hmm. right? Like you hear this described uh, by the, um, by Lin-Manuel Miranda, for example, about the founding fathers, right? And if you read some of their diaries and journals, they say the same thing. Yeah. Like, isn't this incredible? We're all 19 and, and 20, and we're all the smartest, most brilliant people ever to live. Right. And, you know, you you see the same thing in the in the, in the Beatles documentary um, that I'm, I'm watching now on, on Apple uh, Plus, where it's like they're all there saying, isn't this incredible? We're all here at 27, 28 years old. And we're such extraordinary musicians, the greatest people ever to live in, in one place. Right. Um, it's like the Woody Allen movie, but, Midnight in Paris, where they talk about Paris in the 20s, and then they talk about the Belle Epoque and the, yeah. Exactly. I was just going to go to Hemingway and Fitzgerald getting yep. trashed and arguing about how, isn't this incredible? But what those three examples serve to me as are counterexamples. Like, it seemed like you know, slavery was terrible, but the constitution was pretty good. Yeah. And like, let it be was a great album. And the great Gatsby was really good. And like, so was Hemingway's work. Like, I, I think that there is this assumption that people have when they are young, that like, isn't this exciting? And I had it in, um, in undergraduate with some friends. I had it, especially in, in grad school with, yeah, yeah. with some friends thinking like, yeah, there's a lot of crap out here, but like, look at us. Like, right, isn't right, this right. exciting? Yeah, we're we're yeah, all yeah. here together. Um, and I mean, comparing the, the United States constitution with the, the poetry that some of my friends wrote in graduate school <laughs> is, is problematic. But I, I, I think part of the issue in Somerset mom's frustration is his little sleight of hand is that he actually did produce extraordinary work right. that lasted for generations and he was a member of his group. So is that a counterexample to his own work? Is it him bragging? Like, cause there is good art yeah. produced by people. I mean, I, you are wonderful poet and novelist and, and critic. I did get lucky with, with songs that I, Wrote, you know, a Hemingway and Fitzgerald did produce some wonderful work. Like I, right. I there, there, there's a negative aspect of, of this. Thinking like, how is it possible that just like my kids play with Legos and they think it's the coolest thing in the world, young people tend to play with poetry and music and think it's the most wonderful thing in the world? Um, but sometimes it is pretty good. No, am I? No, I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I think that's true in that, like, your counterexamples all serve to me to suggest not something about art, but something about human nature. That, like, I think of the, the, the hero's journey, which I fucking hate, um, but which is inescapable. And it, like, yeah. to me, like, the the moral of the hero's journey is not like this is a universal story that we we should tell again and again and again, but like this is a universal human delusion that we should not tell again and again and again, but like basically like every, 
Like, or well, the, the fact that there are counterexamples doesn't mean that every group of kids in high school who think that their band is going to be the next Beatles are wrong, and that ends up ruining their life because they'll never achieve anything as much as they thought their band could achieve. Well, it just it just me like it's just uh like further. It just it just lends uh credence to the delusion, like like every orphan farm boy you know in Dark Age England thinks that. I'm somehow different. So I bet my my real father must have been a king somewhere. But then like like along comes Arthur and like oh shit his father actually was king. Oh no, this story gets told and then like it's it, it's he he didn't think that because secretly his father was Uther Pendragon. He thought that because he was a fucking kid and everybody thinks that. And like yeah, that's a better point than mine. The the fact that the Beatles existed and Hemingway and Fitzgerald wrote a similar uh no, excellent novels at, at comparable times while hanging out in Paris are tiny examples that don't actually occur compared to well, the, well, everybody's high school or college or graduate school life. The, their feeling about being amazed that they all happen to be together at that moment is, is, a, um, is the least significant part of what's happening with them. Like that's, that's a coincidence. Um, like that's a broken clock being right twice a day. Um, because it is right in their case, but it but it's only right because everybody's clock says that, uh, or, or every you know self centered young artist or folk, you know pseudo artist thinks that. Right. I, I remember for the decade plus where I failed at, at writing novels. I, I had a few agented novels, and um, they they never those I think four novels didn't get published, and people would would give me counterexamples all the time about how hey, this guy didn't find an agent for the first five, 10 years. And this woman had an agent and never got published. And it turned out she wrote, you know, whatever we're all reading today. And it's the most infuriating thing anybody can say to anybody ever in the world, because like, yes, there are six examples of people who didn't get published and then did, but there are 500,000 examples of people who didn't get published and then kept on not getting published and then died. Right. Yeah. That's I, like, would you, could you imagine like your, your friend be like, Oh God, this is really, it's really wearing me out. And you just, you just like forward me a Xeroxed obit of someone who's like, he wrote, he wrote sci-fi novels his whole life, but continued to work in the video store until the age of 60 when he hanged himself. <laughs> right. Right. Is right. Instead of telling you about the, the people who came to, came into their own when they were, I just, and you, yeah, and and, and after his death, his friends read his novels and all agreed they were very bad. Yes, yes. As a dental hygienist, comma she cleaned <laughs> sure. teeth and was upset about not having published. Yeah, and and because um, of her preoccupations, never succeeded even as a dental hygienist. Um, <laughs> yeah, she cleaned teeth poorly, but with well, and vicious the, bloody hands. <laughs> the the other um the the other little wrinkle to this passage that I I, I think about every time I go back to it is. Is mom's is the maybe not universal part of it, which is we don't hear his friend's perspective. We hear him saying that he was really wowed by all of his friends' output. Uh, but it's not the suggestion or the implication seems to be he was not so dazzling at that age, that like he was a little bit, he was not the one everybody was looking to and being impressed by. But it was later though the sort of like tortoise hair kind of rhythm that he ended up developing this into something 
you know, more, more substantial that maybe it had more to do with hard work and, and, or even just like the fact that he was really wowed by his friend's output suggests that like, he was the one who really loved <laughs> art, uh, that he enjoyed art. And so maybe it was that enjoyment plus frustration and hard work that sort of led to whatever he put out later. Uh, right. Like, like, it's that yeah. sentence, youth is the inspiration as a suggestion of naive that like, Leave Any tag, art yeah. that comes out of youth is flawed in some way, whereas what Somerset Mom did himself didn't come out of youth. It had to. Uh, it came out of hard work or self doubt or something else. Um, mm. And that seems clearly not true because, <laughs> I mean, almost all of like maybe because I'm I'm deep in this Beatles. Doc, but it, it seems like when you look at career output, especially of musicians, but often of, of poets and novelists as well, it is in that, like from the age of 20 to 40, when they're putting out their best work. And, and that seems to me um, especially vicious in this uh, sentence that that follows um, youth is the inspiration with one of the tragedies of the arts is the spectacle of the vast number of persons who have been misled passing fertility, meaning in their youth, to devote their lives to the efforts of creation. Their invention deserts them as they grow older and they are faced with the long years before them in which unfitted by now for a more humdrum calling, they uh, harass their weary brains to beat out material it is incapable of giving them. Um, and that is particularly vicious if you don't allow that the inspiration from youth is valid. Because <laughs> Somerset Mom sort of comes with a one-two punch where like inspiration from youth is not a valid engine with which to create art, but repetition and following up on that inspiration is equally invalid. And I don't know where that leaves us. Yeah, that, that seems like maybe the, I think, I think in a way he, he maybe suffers a little bit from the, um, the, the description prescription uh, problem that it's not so much his prescription, but like his, his instinct feels true, but his explanation feels a little bit like sleight of hand, as you said, that, that it's, it's because what he's describing here, which is that earlier on in your career, you have lots of ideas and impulses and you don't even necessarily understand where it's coming from, but you sort of produce these wonderful things. And later on, you know, partly as you get older and slower and partly as you become more reflective and, and self-aware, you become less generative and inventive and you have a harder time drawing things out. I mean, that seems like also accurate, an accurate description of the lives of plenty of very successful artists. Um, like, Absolutely. That, like, I think of like Reg McKnight saying, uh, as I get older, I have fewer ideas, but I can do more with them. Um, uh, which is, which is like a, a, a more optimistic, you know, vision of that, uh, the, you know, change of, of old age. Uh, sorry, go totally. ahead. Totally. But, but what's so, um, vicious about reading this from our perspective as middle-aged men who are touched by the thought that maybe we were artistically special in youth is that yeah. we are his friends, right? It's that <laughs> right. it's not about other people. It's that what's, what's so gut-wrenching about reading this is that we were just 20 year olds who somebody thought were special, right? Yeah. And that 
really we weren't special. We just liked quoting Bob Dylan lyrics or liked reading Ashbery poems or liked reading Philip Roth novels and, and were sort of repeating some hodgepodge combination of Ashbery and Dylan and, and Roth and some college professor told us or some friend told us like, or group told us like, oh yeah, you should get in the literary magazine or you should play your song on stage, you know? And then that excitement was so much more powerful than the excitement of getting a A minus on a math test or, you know, passing to the really good basketball player before he shot the three pointer that we decided that what was special about us was our ability to put words in a certain order and excite people. And then the entire trajectory of our professional lives were defined by that moment in our 17, 18, 19, 20s, right? Where people intimated to us that the thing that made us special was our ability to do this. When in fact, we were just young and mm -hmm. put words together in a fun way. And now, I mean, what you read the slush piles for a poetry magazine and teach and I, teach and run a tutoring company, you know, these are all sort of vaguely al allied with the arts. Yeah, and yes, yeah. you are an excellent writer. And I try to publish some stuff once in a while, but really the, um, the engine behind this was us being one of the people mom is decrying uh, when we were young, that all we had was the natural, natural creativity of youth to write prose and verse, to hammer out little tunes in the piano, to paint or instinctive in a gr great many young persons. And like our more sensible friends went and like became dentists, right? Like they, yeah, yeah, yeah. they, they realized that like, yeah, they like strumming the, the, the guitar with their friends in the garage, but like, that's just what kids do. You and I, and probably everyone else you've had as a guest on the show were the, <laughs> naive fools who were told at the age of 20, like, whoa, read that back to me. Like, that's pretty good. And then that opened up some horror show, right? That, that, yeah. that opened up some first episode in a television series of, of pain and disappointment that, that has become our professional lives where like, yeah, great. I made it. I published these novels. I write in the New Yorker and the Atlantic, but like, who gives a shit? Like, no one is saying that the art I create has any value. And, and like that, I think, is, is at the core of both uh, the Jocelyn Schrager story by Tom Ditch and Career Move by Martin Amos. It's these people who have been somehow convinced by themselves or others yeah. that they should pursue careers in the arts, that they have something special to say. And the implication by Tom Ditch and, and Martin Amos um, and also by the journalist who wrote a bad art friend uh, by, I mean, about Sonia Larson and Don Darlin is that all of the characters in all of these stories are fooling themselves, just yeah. like you, Matthew Buckley Smith, and I, Brian Platzer, yeah, did yeah, yeah, yeah. when we were 20. Can, can I tell you my, <laughs> my, my perverse psychological, the perverse psychological mechanism by which I, self-justify uh in, in, in reading this it's it was in what the comparison that comes to mind is i don't know if you read that peter sheldahl piece uh, a couple few years ago when he wrote about how he he'd been diagnosed with lung cancer and and you know he when he got when he got sober some years back he you know he said like well let's 
I'm going to, you know, I, I got to give up the alcohol and, you know, the smoking, I, I'll make my peace with it because, because I can, you know, at least, at least the, you know, it doesn't kill my brain and so forth. So it's like a very moving and well-written sort of piece about this, this art critic and, and how he'd kind of accepted his mortality. The thought I had when I read it was, huh, if I became an alcoholic, maybe <laughs> I would be allowed to smoke and nobody would bother me about it anymore. <laughs> and that's sort of the same way I think about this, where like, like when I read this and I hear you say that, and I like, I think of all of the, um, the friends we had in grad school who were like, oh, I won the poetry prize at my college. And, I, and then I think about co- like my college experience, which is like, huh, everyone in college told me I was terrible at poetry. Nobody encouraged me. The only person who liked my poetry was Ryan Wilson, who was also the only reason I got into grad school. And like, maybe the fact that I was not encouraged and I was simply like, it was only my own, you know, like self-driven delusion, like means that really it's, this doesn't apply to me. Totally. I I think it doesn't apply to you. I I think that you are a a sincere, I don't, I I don't think that you are driven by an egomaniacal sense of self-importance in the same way that Ryan Wilson and I and the characters in the Jocelyn Tragen story and um, the Martin Amos story are. I think, no, I think I, I think, think my 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 uh, I think my uh, my egotism is just less susceptible to empirical evidence. <laughs> I think like that's I think that's the, the the main difference. No, I mean this is but this is just such a um, so, so you described it as being vicious, and it's. Maybe, yeah, but I mean, maybe the vicious part is just is is the part that that's unsaid, which is, and this doesn't apply to me. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's unrelenting towards the other person. It gives yeah. them no off ramp. Whereas yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Somerset Mom, have had a grand career at writing plays and short stories and novels, but all of these other people whom I made the mistake of thinking were talented in the past, one, they weren't talented in the past. Two, they're either dead now or failures. Three, the only people who had some success had success because they found careers aligned (laughs) to the arts, right? right? It's like, there's no off-ramp. There's no way to avoid it. It's like, once you get, once you define yourself as an artist, you're fucked because you're not a real artist because nobody is in these worlds. And it's not, again, it's not only in the Somerset mom world. It's in the Somerset Mom world. It's in the Bad Art Friend world. It's in the Jocelyn Schrager story world. It's in the Career Move world. It's in all these worlds. No one is a real artist. So then, what are you left with? You're left with death, failure, or sad successes of journalism or teaching, which I, Somerset Mom, know aren't successes at all. So, so then, like taking taking the Freudian principle that like all all dreams are wish fulfillment and all art is just sort of a, 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 a re a reincarnation of a dream in some form, then we're going to get to the, the two stories, but is it, are all three of these compositions, including this mom uh, excerpt, are all three of these secret wish fulfillment in the form of setting the writer himself apart from the depressing story that he's telling Saying like like here is here is what failure looks like. It doesn't look like me. Is is that what like so that? I, I think that is the case with Martin Amos. That is the case with Somerset Mom. 
that is the case for the journalist who wrote Bad Art Friend. Yeah. But that is not the case for the Jocelyn Schrager story. So let's start with that. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. Because it feels to me like Tomich um, wrote the Jocelyn Schrager story to implicate the entire art world and himself yeah. in this world of futility and uselessness. Um, a point think gets some credence from the fact that he uh, committed suicide shortly after writing. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that he is saying, "Look at all these other shows. I'm the real artist." I think he's saying we're all just miserable, selfish assholes whose art is sort of interchangeable with pornography, whose compliments are interchangeable with. Um, you know, the, the demand for reciprocity of those compliments. Um, would you like to paraphrase the Jocelyn Schrager story? Would you like to yeah, yeah, yeah. explain it to, to your listeners and then we can rant on? Yeah. Uh, so the, and, and to, to, it's also, and I think significantly because he, he makes the, he makes the, the, the subject of the story as unappealing as possible. It's not even the Jocelyn Schrager story. It's the Joycelyn Schrager story. Oh no, you're right. Yeah, which oh, is a far worse name than Jocelyn. Yes. Joycelyn. Also, Schrager, Schrager is her last yeah. name, which she insists makes other people think she's Jewish and therefore treat her with anti-Semitism, <laughs> even though the narrator is like, it never even occurred to me that you would be Jewish. Yeah, like, Jewish. Yeah, every yeah. part of her life is just ugly and terrible. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, yeah. So, so this story was recommended to me by a listener as an example of of a very true to life depiction of <laughs> the lives of poets. And I, and I, I, I got, so it was published in the Paris review as it happens, you can read like 95% of this is truly like the last page and a half that, that are behind the paywall, but you can read 95% of it um, on the Paris reviews website. And by the way, if anyone else, if anyone listening to this is dying to read a version of it without paying the Paris review, you know, write me a note at sleebreakers at gmail.com and, and I might know a guy. Um, I might I might know a copy that fell off the back of a truck. But so this was recommended to me as a, as a story about poets. I tracked down a, uh, it's not a first edition, but it is a signed hardcover copy of this book, which was the only way I could find it from a very obscure used bookstore in the UK. You mortgaged your, your home <laughs> right. in, in order to buy a my, copy yeah, of My second born will not go to college in order for me to read the story. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not about poets. There are no, yeah. there are no poets in the story. There's, there's one poem briefly mentioned. It's not about poets at all. It's, it's in, it's in the, the, the 1976 book, Getting Into Death, which was published by Knopf. Um, not about poets at all. Uh, but it's still, it's a terrific story. And, and, and it is, I will say, as soon as I read it, I understood why my listener, I, I think why my listener had had thought it was about poets in his recollection, having presumably read because it Because it's ago. not explicitly about poets, it's about failed, sad artists. Yeah, it, it is about it is about independent filmmakers who resemble nothing so much as as the average poet. Uh, it was also published, it was first published in Paris Review in, in winter 1975. It is the story, it is a love story. Um, it, it is the story of Donald Long, who was a projectionist at the Europa, who I think in the very first sentence of the story refers to himself as a mechanic of the dream, which, which tells you a whole lot, I think, about, about his character and the character of the story. 
early on. He's a projectionist at a, at a tiny art house theater. He also is the the editor owner of the of the tiny uh, art film criticism magazine footage, which is we're told both the the leading uh, or the it's not the leading. It's it's a totally failed and unsuccessful magazine, except that it is very well-respected in the underground film scene. It also appears to be by all, by all, you know, accounts filled with, with basically, basically nothing but his uh, uh, flattering euphemistic treatment of his friend's terrible art movies. And which he publishes at a loss, this magazine each month. Yes. So he needs to continue working as a projectionist at a, Film. Yeah, in order in order to, to to fund this this with this this venture, which is in itself a kind of a uh, I mean, it might as well be be a piece of art in the same way that that the other things in the book are in the in the story. Are. So so he falls in love with this at first sight with this this young woman who comes to see uh, a, a movie at his theater one day, and from the very beginning, we are told explicitly that uh, that it is it is it is both. Love at first sight, and there is nothing objectively to suggest that one ought to or would fall in love. Oh, I should say first, he is described as being no treat himself. He's like the, he's a scrawny, aging, uh, sad projectionist with a Ben Franklin haircut. Um, <laughs> That's exactly right. He's a bald man, and as though the story is complimenting him, he's like, but lately he's come into himself and has grown his long, bald ponytail hair down to his lower back. Yeah. Like that's the the compliment that yeah. he receives. So, so he- she, when she enters the story, um, she says, "Maybe you can do me a favor." First description of her we get is she bared her small brown teeth. <laughs> In a defeated smile, like a teenage panhandler's <laughs> or a Scientologist's. That no rebuff could display. And that's actually slightly earlier than that. The, the very first image we get of her is a damp, large, lardy girl in a yellow vinyl poncho. <laughs> <laughs> the writing is funny. It is <laughs> funny. Like, it's so mean. Yeah. Like, it, it is so mean in a way that I don't know that that literature. I feel like it used to be meaner. I, I don't. This this story struck me as such a product of the seventies in a way that I, I I just sort of associate with like. I, these are some writers I've I've thought of. I'm, I'm trying to think of like who from the but like there's like some updike in it where it's just like oh by the way this girl is hideously ugly you know yeah, updike yeah. will have or like. Stone will give you a paragraph about some drunk at a bar we never meet again and how his shoelaces don't match or, mm-hmm. you know, fear and loathing in Las Vegas or even gravity's rainbow has like weird, you know, digressions about, Oh, that woman, you wouldn't shit on her with a, for a bowl full of biscuits, you know? And like, you don't know if that's a joke or not. Um, I feel like in the seventies and then like the Rachel papers in the seventies, right. And Martin Amos wrote that. And we'll talk about another Martin Amos book, but it's just full of like cruel descriptions. I, I feel like the, the Jocelyn Schrager story is a, is just a litany of cruel descriptions of horrible people making selfish decisions. I, I totally agree. And I was gonna say the other, the other author you didn't mention who, who I was reminded of, I think I have read, who was the second person you mentioned? 
after oh, Robert Stone. Stone. Yeah, okay, Stone. Yeah, sorry, the, the audio clipped. Um, yeah, yeah. I have I have read. I think none of them. But what I was reminded of uh, was was Vonnegut, um, who was who who wrote sci-fi. And Tom Dish was mostly known as Tom Dish also wrote poetry, and he was mostly known as a sci-fi writer. Um, and this specifically, I think maybe it was his use of the word beaver the way he does. Oh. He says, yeah, which is awful, but, but like Vonnegut seems to be kind of in ironic or like double ironic quotation marks. Totally. The the different, the main difference between Vonnegut and this from, from what I've read is that Vonnegut is, is focused on plot, but Vonnegut, there, there is a, a, a specific beginning, middle and end, and he will almost twist the characters to fit his weirdo plots especially in his short stories yeah whereas tom dish doesn't seem interested at all in in no this is like a a 20 a 20 page lyric basically uh absolutely just quickly the the because the other the other theme of the the story is that is that love is he says explicitly love is a curse that he 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 has like a greek vision of eros as like the, the golden arrow that strikes you and ruins your life he says he says uh um uh early on he says because the very first thing she asked him to do is to is to film her coming down the street, and he says through the viewfinder he watched her advancing toward him with a sinking certainty that fate had come in at the door without knocking. He knew she was not beautiful. Indeed, her face and figure and bearing passed beyond mere homeliness into the realm of absolutes. She was sinfully ugly. Nevertheless, his whole frame was in a tremble of sexual anxiety, such as no beaver had ever aroused him to. And that is beaver. <laughs> Which is like just to like suck any dignity that might have been left in that in, in that depiction, and he did, he it is you know they they do refer to like basically the 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 movie theater kind of gets by by showing like highbrow skin flicks, uh, and that's that's part of what's referred. And not only that, but it, spoiler alert! So once again, if you would like to go mortgage your house to find a first edition copy of this book of short stories to read the jo- Joycelyn Schrager story. You pause the podcast now and then come back six to eight months from now when you've, right, uh, right. when you've managed to find and, and read this, but he ends up selling his magazine footage to a purchaser who makes it a high end reviewer of uh, porn films yeah. in order to buy this hideous love of his life, a whole bunch of uh, camera and film equipment. Uh, with which she will continue making um, episodes in her terrible, terrible movie, and and that's that's only the that's like the penultimate thing he he gives up for her sake. That like he, like the whole story basically after he meets her, he basically the, the moment he meets her, he knows she's awful, and she turns out to be awful. Not just she she the the, the ugliness is not skin deep. It's 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 thoroughgoing. Um, she's awful in in every respect. She's she's uh she's made a list here both childish and decrepit physically both <laughs> both lazy and indefatigable both insecure and self-entitled like she's the worst at every turn she's horrible and and here here's the thing about this so unlike the mom i mean i, I liked all three of these but i would say unlike the mom passage unlike the, the amos passage i mean this one is so mean and it's probably the most detailed in its meanness but this is the one that felt to me also most humane like, and I think it has something to do with what you said about this feeling not like a, not like a dig at others, but a, but like a, a, a self, a self exposition. So, so I mean, basically, the plot of the story, just to give give people an overview, is he he meets this this uh, girl, young woman, 
at the movie theater. He instantly falls in love with her. He, he immediately starts screening her horrible and, and endless uh, auto autobiographical movie, The Dance of Life, uh, which she just keeps making in installments. It's, we're called, told it's a film fleuve. Um, and uh, he, in, in addition to giving her time at his, at his little art house theater, as well as all of his, his personal attention and time, he calls in every favor of every friend he, he's ever known and, um, and demands that, that they pay her attention and come see her movies and, and indeed come to his house to watch private screenings and then compliment her. He, he, says, um, he says he has this moment of reflection where he sort of realizes that his whole life he's been, he's had this soft spot for losers and he's kind of spent so much of his, his like con- conscious, mature, creative faculty coming up with ways to flatter bad work and and like worthless people. And he thinks of his, you know, he says it doesn't make him love jo- Joycelyn any less, It, but it, it, it makes him think about all of the, he makes him realize he resented all of his friends. Everybody in his life is someone he resents that he's, he's been paying out flattery and as well as like booze and, you know, loans to. And it says he wanted nothing but to be rid of them. No, even more, he wanted a revenge for the decades he had spent praising their meretricious work. And he began to see how beautifully and without a single overt betrayal, he might obtain it. Exactly. And, and the reason why I think that this is a more um, human and, and humane um, story than the others were describing is because, as you say, he he does not separate himself from these characters at all. It is clear that the writer here considers himself, if not the protagonist Donald, then one of this set. And you can imagine him ending this story. He looked up at the camera and began to cry for her, for him, for all his friends, for the dance of life. And then the author of this story going and committing ritual suicide and everything being over. Like it's, it's, it's the, the character is one by one burning everything that matters to him, all of his friendships, his job, his magazine, for this one woman whom he acknowledges is horrible. They get married, he weeps, story over, life of the artist over, nothing remains in a way that is um, incredibly tender and touching. I mean, you can, you can see him within the framework of this mom quotation as just acknowledging that he's one of those who, when he was young, felt like there was some facility there to hammer out, you know, little tunes on the piano to draw or to paint, realized that the best he could do was to make a living in ways allied to the arts, like having a little magazine and being a projectionist at a movie theater, realizing how much suffering this has created in his life, how little joy, how little value, yeah. you know, and, and, there, and there's something to me more touching about hearing this conversation from the perspective of the failure, then hearing it from the perspective of mom, who comes off as haughty in defining his friends in such a way. There is a, a, a moment that I, I paused at this, you know, reading this the second time. He, because he, I mean, the, the other story, of course, that comes to mind is the, the, the Christian parable, the Pearl of Great Price. I don't know if you know this. For Christians in the, you know, when, when this thing is likened to the kingdom of heaven, that's, that's a good thing. You should give up everything you own for, you know, to pursue this one thing. But, but if you're an artist or a, you know, a, a heroin addict, then it's, then it's probably a bad thing. Uh, but he, so he, of course, like the, the final humiliation after he has 
given up, you know, he's, he's moved her into his apartment. He's supporting her in, in just about every way possible. She gets fired from her terrible job for imaginary anti-Semitism. Uh, she's, um, uh, she, she comes to sort of be this, this enormous all-consuming presence in his life. He sells his, his baby, you know, the, the sort of this one-sided gift of the Magi where like she gives him crocheted pillows and he sells everything that matters to him in order to give her all of this, this, you know, and then she takes a moment to contemplate the gift exchange. Yeah. And her conclusion is, yes, this is correct. He did very well. <laughs> right, right. That's, oh no, that's, that's, and that's part of what's so wonderful about her is that she, she is insecure, but it says, um, uh, Don, Donald in, in, you know, in, in making love to her, it says it astonished him in his more reflective moments, how accepting she was of her own substandard goods, that she's completely convinced of her own, her own greatness, uh, in this, in this bizarre way. But after he's, he's, you know, sold, sold everything, given up everything to her. He finally, he, he does marry her. And then a- after the wedding, he comes back and the sort of the last scene of the, the, the story is that she finally lets him into the bedroom and she's lying on the bed naked with her, with her bridal veil on uh, and a camera running aimed at the, at the bed and, and sort of invites him to come give even their wedding night's consummation to her terrible movie. And that's when he, he, he sort of blanches and he sits on the edge of the bed, cupping his balls and, and sort of cries. And the sentence that, that gave me pause just for a moment, because it is the story is, we're told, you know, that there was this one moment in his first failed marriage when he he made a movie called Tides of the Blood or something, uh, which <laughs> made me think of of, of of Kurosawa's Throne of Blood about Macbeth. Um, but it's it's about it's a it's a you know that was a story about his, that his t- failed first marriage. But otherwise, he he doesn't seem to be himself making art explicitly anywhere. He 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 is a projectionist in the movie theater. He he runs this magazine and he loves this woman, but the, the line right toward the end, as he sits down on the bed, it was, he was thinking about failure, which seemed tonight the universal fact of human life. And I wondered about what, I mean, cause it felt so apt of course, because in addition to adoring Joycelyn and forcing all of his friends to compliment her and giving up everything he owns in order to support her terrible work, he knows it's terrible. Like he doesn't actually have illusions. He knows she's awful and she, and her work is awful. And there's really nothing redeeming about her except that he against his will is in love with her. So how did you read that? The terms of that failure? Is it just that everybody in the entire story is a failure? Like, but specifically like with him, what is it that because I have, I told you my already my sort of my meta interpretation of this of the story, which is almost unnecessary because the whole thing is is so recursive. But how did you read that failure for him? About failure, which seemed tonight his wedding night, yeah, the universal fact of human life. But he couldn't say that. That's what I focused on. That he's alone, having abandoned everything for this one woman. This one woman says we are the same. You can tell me anything that's on your mind now. We are one. Share with me what you're thinking. What he's thinking is what he's always thinking about is failure. And he can't even say that, which is a sort of ultimate failure. That I, I, I saw that as the way that the author, Tom Dish, is insisting that even this marriage is a failure. Because at the end, 
he can't even say his ultimate truth to her, which we as a reader know is that life is fucking awful and you fail. He knows that that is the one truth that he can't say to his wife who needs this artistic success to keep going on. So that, to me, that moment was created less as an epiphany on his part than it was as a further um, failure that he can't articulate that truth to his wife for whom he has abandoned everything else. Yeah. Okay. So it's even like, I think people love the, um, I think it was, I think it was it Virgil who was the first one re recorded to say, Amor Winkit Omnia, love conquers all. Um, we love that because it feels to us redemptive. We even like, there's the, uh, even there was even the, the, the terrible, uh, failed Hillary Clinton slogan, love, love Trump's hate which is a, a kind of an echo of that, but read with a different understanding of love. It's actually, is actually a horrifying moral that like love exactly. eats it, it everything makes, and ruins everything right. and, and leaves like leaves nothing but like twisted railroad tracks and salted earth behind. Um, totally. Which, which I think is uh, another um, ungenerous interpretation of any one purpose to life, any teleological life, if it's heaven or love or anything else, really what's gonna happen is everything gets destroyed and ruined for this one goal. And no matter what that goal is, it can't be worth it because it destroys and ruins everything. You know, and I, I think yeah. that that's part of the, the moral of this story that like, whether it's art, which obviously is valueless in the world of, of the Joycelyn Schrager story, or love, which we think might have some value in this world, that light is extinguished by the end. And, and we're, we're meant to, to see that there is no close yeah. that's worth. Love redeems nothing, that it, it doesn't. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I mean, but that I think is, again, it's part of what is, to me, sort of touching and human about the story is that it's the, the, the deepest and most final loss is, is not, that the art's bad. It's not that his career is nothing. It's that he, the love fails or the, the marriage, like it's that he's alone in his marriage and he can't even share it. Like if, if all of this were just the same, but he and Joycelyn were sort of had a, a special shared, honest intimacy, then there would be redemption. But there Absolutely. Can't, there Even can't if they even just rapturously make love right. as a part of this movie at the end, and what they are is they are love and art, and even if it's bad, they have it together. That would reverse the entire lesson of of this story. It, it would change everything, and I think be incredibly false because yeah. of how much we as a reader um, are forced to endure her horribleness throughout. Right. But the fact that she's so hard, sacrifices everything for her, and they are left with nothing, not even honesty or or love that, that satisfies, is is really moving in, in its way, uh, which is why the story, I think, is, is successful in a way that Career Move by Martin Amis is less successful. Do you yeah. agree with that or disagree? I, I agree. I mean, I think Career Move is 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 aiming at something different. Um, but yeah, no, I think this this is a kind of it is just as satirical, but it is still but the but the 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 focus is on is finally on character, and in and in uh, Career Move, it's 
it's on the social milieu. Career Move is a story by Martin Amos that was originally published in The New Yorker in June 1992. And it's it's sort of a a, a one joke, one conceit piece where um, Amos takes the life, uh, the professional and personal life of a poet and places it within the vocabulary and context of a successful screenwriter and uh, performs the reversal as well, where he takes the life of a screenwriter and performs it um, in the uh, personal and professional existence of a suffering poet. Do I have that more or less right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think. I think. I think so. And I think you're right to to note that it's specifically a, a successful screenwriter and an, an unsuccessful poet. In some ways, I wonder if the story might have been a little bit different if it had been. It, well, it would have been different. I wonder. I wonder how the satire would have landed if it had been the the a successful poet that he'd been. You know, which is because because or, the scale or an would unsuccessful still been, screenwriter, right? Or, or right, an unsuccessful right, yeah. screenwriter. I mean, I, I think that that's part of the laziness of the story, which I think is a funny setup for which you know Amos comes through with a few punchlines that that are that are that work. You know, yeah, and yeah. we should discuss them, but. All it is is a is a setup with a series of punchlines. W- would you did, did you read it similarly? Did you think that there was a, a, a greater meaning there? No, I mean that yeah, that, that was my, my 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 question was was like, well, it's it would be you wouldn't be able to write this story if it didn't have that inversion. If you were just writing the story of a sad, suffering poet and you were just writing the story of a of a shallow, uh, money-obsessed, successful screenwriter, but but that you reverse them doesn't what does it amount to other than maybe that like poetry poetry seems pure and artistic only because it's obscure and screenwriting seems shallow and and uh, uh craven only because it's successful but we sort of we kind of already know that right and like so yeah i mean it, it seemed like it, it, it other than just being being funny to read, and it is. It's like it's a it's a funny, quick read, and and I'll I'll of course give do links to everything in the in the show notes. But yeah, I don't know. Summarize what... it. Give uh, give a thirty second summary. Yeah, so it's so it's just two parallel stories. Alistair, who's a a, a screenwriter in this world, which means he. I mean, I'll, I can just read the very beginning because it'll give you a sense of what we're talking about. Uh, when Alistair finished his new screenplay, offensive from Quasar Thirteen. <laughs> He submitted it to the LM and waited. Over the past year, he had had more than a dozen screenplays rejected by The Little Magazine. On the other hand, his most recent submission, A Batch of Five, had been returned not with the standard rejection slip, but with a handwritten note from the screenplay editor, Hugh Sixsmith. The note said, I was really rather taken with two or three of these and seriously tempted by Hotwire, which I thought close to being fully achieved. Do please go on sending me your stuff. Hugh Sixsmith was himself a screenplay writer of considerable, though uncertain, reputation. So the story is sort of the story of, for Alistair, the story is a story kind of of him eventually publishing this one uh, screenplay after, you know, there's many rounds of extended and humiliating uh, uh, submission and waiting and and correspondence with this self-absorbed second rate, but somewhat anointed uh, editor screenwriter and he ends up going and meeting the guy for drinks and and like getting stuck with the tab after like this t- like alcoholic drinks him under the table while telling stories about all of his alcoholic relatives uh, and giving him these like condescending 
compliments about his own work. He, he finally sends a, this is after, you know, after like a year of waiting and sending many sycophantic notes f- following up, he then sends one like righteously furious, aggrieved note insulting Sixsmith. And then immediately that, you know, that's when he hears from him. It's just sort of like this, this endless gauntlet of humiliations, uh, the, the final humiliation of which I guess is that he, he, you know, after all of these notes that he, he, he makes on the screenplay, he finally runs it sort of haphazardly with none of the notes applied in an issue that then of course nobody pays attention to. And then shortly after when Sixsmith is on his deathbed, uh, Alistair goes and, and holds his hand crying and thanking him for everything that he, that he, you know, gave him in his, in his life. In, in, in meanwhile, uh, in, in a, in a, a parallel life, Luke, a, a lazy and self-entitled screenwriter, uh, sorry, poet who is clearly, a, you know, meant to stand in for a successful screenwriter has dashed off this, this, um, poem called Sonnet and faxed it to his agent. And it, it's, it, you know, very quickly he's in phone conversations with, producers around the world in LA and various other places about development. Uh, and he's, he's of course, very, very wealthy from, from uh, all of his, his efforts. And then every conversation with every, you know, producer, poem producer that he has is basically just a series of questions and comparisons about the box office results of other poems. You know, a small, nice touch I thought was that even in this, in this bizarro land, all of the screenplays are shitty, b-movie schlock about like a, a a psychic serial killer and all of the poems are still are still self-important pretentious uh horseshit but yeah I mean, but yes and then, like Luke, very impressive yeah. i mean yeah. even in what you first paragraph like offensive from quasar 13 yeah that's is pretty a good. funny name yeah. for a screenplay for somebody to be desperately waiting to see if it's accepted. (laughs) The idea of sending in a batch of screenplays is such a great joke. Cause like what literary, I mean, the idea of calling it a little, the the name of the magazine is little magazine, which you could find quaint for a poetry magazine, but the idea of little magazine somehow publishing a thousand pages of screenplays (laughs) is just like a funny joke. Like screenplays are so long. Yeah. And he's he's like dashing, he's dashing these off. Like, right. like several of them He's a like, month in yeah. this batch of five screenplays that you're sending <laughs> right. in to choose yeah. one from is is funny yeah. and like also i don't know if you caught the one tiny weird detail where alistair alistair the uh the screenplay writer and his girlfriend are both physically tiny as well <laughs> so <laughs> for them they, they sleep in a single bed which is like a giant luxurious space to them. for them they can't believe that they both of their tiny bodies get to have this humongous <laughs> single bed, you know, to sleep in. So like it's it is weird in like fun ways that that this guy is submitting screenplays to a tiny magazine and like one after another rewriting and just outputting screenplays with his tiny girlfriend. Like that's funny, right? Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of the 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 like bonkers sense of scale in like old Norse stories or like in Beowulf. I don't know if you, you remember like when, when Grendel first comes into Harrod, it says like oh, sure. he, yeah. with one, with one, you know, e- evil monstrous hand, he swept up 20 warriors and squeezed them. <laughs> He's like, wait, what? And then, and then moments later, right. Beowulf grabs his arm and like crushes it and rips it out of its sock. Right. So, yeah. there, there's some line like 600 chicken dinners, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a float upon him. Go. I mean, it's a, it is a good joke. It's, it's funny. Yeah, right. And, and, the, mean, and then the, and then the other side of that is like the, the, the multi-million dollar productions of these 
poems uh these like short right. short lyric everybody poems. every everybody needs collaboration we need to get 12 people on the phone to discuss it, which is a sonnet and then you know can you change the sonnet's form to become a valve at, at one point and like they all agree that that's the way to go because sonnets aren't selling as well in the movie theaters like it's but it's just a joke yeah so what uh what else in the amos story did we nothing the amos story is a joke yeah, it's, it's fine a joke. It's, it's funny a good, it's a good I mean, joke it's, it's 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 a good joke like the poetry um executives you know who fill in for the film executives they are despicable in in every way um they have an argument about whose son started calling them an asshole at the youngest age so my son said joe thoughtfully after the waiter had delivered their drinks called me an asshole this morning for the first time right and the joke is that like people would say like my my son took his first steps today or yeah, my yeah. son, you know, like uh, called and said Dada for the first time, but instead it's called me an asshole. Um, that's in said Bo. And all of the um, poetry executives have um, monosyllabics, which I think. Yeah, they, they either, they're either alliterative, like in some scenes they all start with the same letter and then in other scenes they all rhyme or something like, yeah, they're. They're always right. sort of joking. So here, you know, that's well said Bo. My son called me an asshole this morning for the first time. So said Mo. Joe said he's six years old for Christ's sakes. Phil said, my son called me an asshole when he was five. So they're arguing. My son hasn't called me an asshole yet, said Jim. And he's nine. So like Jimmy being vulnerable there. Did like and the like, anxiety of the one guy whose son is a slow And then runner. like Totally. And Mo comes in at the end of that scene. And Mo goes, my son's three. And he calls me an <laughs> asshole all the time. And everyone looked suitably impressed. So it's it's funny, sort of. The, the big difference, I, I feel, which is what makes it less funny, is that Amos um, separates himself from the characters of his scorn. So yeah, yeah. Amos is judging the um, poet and the screenwriter. But for far more than that, he's judging the um, world that those poets and screenwriters inhabit. And whether he reverses those worlds or not, Amos as a poet and a writer and, you know, screenwriter adjacent, et cetera. He's just talking shit about the instruments of publication and production that he's had to deal with. So it, to me, it's, it's a whole lot less interesting than the Joycelyn Schrager example, where uh, Tom Dish implicates himself as much as he does his characters. Well, so like, despite being a guy who, you know, published with Knopf and, and had a fine career as a, as a, a sci-fi writer is not a, is not a household name the way Martin Amos is. Like, like he he's the the far less successful writer. I also wondered about, um, and it felt a little bit different just because it was all they were also genres of writing. Whereas whereas with with the Joycelyn Schrager story, like the the filmmaking seems like a very clear stand in for all art. Uh, with with Amos the it does seem like it's sort of genre specific. And he is, if I'm not mistaken, he's chiefly known as a writer of fiction and memoir, right? For sure. Yeah. So, so he's sort of, he's, he's pointedly not writing about novelists here. Right. He's mocking two groups of people. Like, like two, two shitty genres in. of writing that suck that he right. has one, for. one shitty because it doesn't matter yeah. poetry and the other shitty because it's superficial screenwriting. And I don't, and he publishes this in the New Yorker. It, it just seems like it is a, he's sort of top dogging everybody as opposed to Schrager who, I mean, as, as opposed to Dish who through the Schrager story puts himself very much in the world that he is mocking. 
Yeah. Which brings me to bad art friend, not yeah. because I want to spend too much time right, on it, right, but right. because it's probably what your listeners will be most familiar with. Um, and therefore is worth our chatting about for a couple minutes. So my reason for raising this is I feel like there are a few waves of discussion that followed um, who is the bad art friend. First is when we all read it and said, this is funny. These people are fucking horrible. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I felt that too. Um, and that was my first wave. The second wave is a closer analysis of what was going on, whereby for the most part, Dawn Dorland is seen in better light. Because after the article, it came out that uh, she didn't force this medical history on everybody. It was more uh, closed off than that. And that uh, Sonia Larson's story was um, the one that won the uh, Boston Reads Award and the, and the NEA grant. Um, I've gone and read the story and it is uh, truly terrible. It, it is the, it, it's called The Kindest and it, it has- I'm sorry, the, your um, audio clipped a little bit. You said it's, it is truly wonderful, right? No, I didn't. It is truly terrible. It's a terrible story. And I wanted it not to be so I could have a counterintuitive take, but it's really bad. After the main character um, donates an organ because she's kind, she is in her uh, operating room still, or maybe recovery room. It's, it's unclear. And then this is quote from the story. The people gathered around me. They shook the surgeon's hand, clinked champagne over my bed. It spilled on the sheet, comma, it spilled on me, period. Night came, period. The people left, period. So in addition to a comma splice in a series of short sentences that otherwise would have been you know, grammatically sensible, we're somehow in a world where immediately post-surgery, the surgeon is there, the person is recovering, and people are physically drinking champagne over the bed to the point that champagne is spilling on the woman in the hospital bed. It's all just nonsense. Right, yeah. It's, like, it's not only that that wouldn't happen post-surgery, it wouldn't happen at any time or place. Like no, right. nowhere just, would that it, happen. And and it's not like also there's some little problematic details about like where the scar is, but I honestly sure, don't yeah, care yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I let people invent where Fine. the scar is on, on surgery. I, it doesn't matter. But it's just like this story is full of lazy attempts at, establishing a world that the author hadn't really thought through. And, and it seems like the point of that, like grossly inaccurate detail is not even just to evoke a feeling of being in this experience, but rather to shit on the shittiness of people who are not the main character. A hundred percent. Totally. But my take after reading the Times story and all the takes about Sonia Larson, including a bunch of she sucks because she's a white savior. Oh God! Yeah. Um, you mean Don Dorland? Then Dorland, Dorland yeah. sucks because yeah. she's a white savior. But then Sonia Larson also sucks because she can race into something that doesn't really have anything to do with it. Like, I kind of think all these people are fine. Like, I'm not. <laughs> like, like these are just all of the people I know, and myself included. Like. I don't know if I was going to give a kidney, I probably want to talk a lot about it and get a lot of attention for giving a kidney. Like, like my kid plays T-ball and I want to get attention for that and talk about that. Cause like, it's an important thing in my life. So like insofar as social media exists as like a self-publishing, uh, you know, outlet, like 
If you give a kidney, shit, yeah. Talk about how you're giving a kidney. Also, who cares if you steal your friend's stuff? Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I've stolen my friend's stuff and like some of it verbatim. And, and like, I don't know, like I, I took a line from a, a short story that Andrew Palmer wrote in graduate school and put it in the novel of mine. And like, yeah. I probably shouldn't have done that. But like, it was a really good line. Like, I, I just. Yeah. No, the plagiarism, I, I thought, like, of, it was totally fine. Like, 100% acceptable. Let people yeah. plagiarize. Yeah. And like, also, this lady wrote a bad short story that won a, a, a prize. Like, that's cool. Yeah. Like, there's so many bad short stories that win prizes or don't win prizes. And like, if they want to name their group of, of writers, Chunky Monkeys, like okay, like that sucks, but that's fine. Like they have a nice group of writers and the writers talk shit about one another. Like we certainly do that. Like, I, I just don't, I don't know what the, what the bad part of, of any of this is. And, and like, if a white lady wants to write about some aspect of it being tough to be doing some things she did with some white privilege, like, I don't know, giving an organ seems tough if you're white or not. And like, if a, uh, half Asian woman wants to write about how a white lady shouldn't be writing about how hard it is because it's harder to be half Asian. Like I'm cool with that too. Like it's probably hard to be half Asian in some ways. Like I, I think that it's fun to make fun of things, Yeah. but then you can't step back and judge people for making fun of things. You know, like it, it seems like everybody wants to have it both ways where both these people suck and are garbage and those people who judge them for sucking and our garbage suck and are garbage. And I, I, I feel like it goes back a, a little bit to the distinction that Somerset mom was making, which is that like everybody is just selfish and doing their best. And like in, in this story, like Sonia Larson is an artist because she publishes this story in Boston Reads and gets the NEA grant where Dawn Dorland is not an artist because all she does is remain on Facebook. Um, similarly, the mom quote, like he is an artist because he's, he continued to be an artist and wrote, you know, these, these best-selling books and his friends who were just tinkerers were not, but thought they were. Um, Similarly, in the Joycelyn Schrager story, there's a distinction made, which I think uh, Tom Dish does a great job of undercutting, which is that there is a difference between the artists who create film and write about film, the art critics, and the pornographers who are not artists, who are, you know, uh, thought of as this like lower form of, of art. But I... I, I think I am ready to question all of those assumptions. Mom's assumption that he is an artist and his tinkering friends weren't. Um, Dish's implication that there's a difference between a pornographer and an artist within this world of film. Uh, Amos's distinction where like, isn't this funny, a poet and a screenwriter are in different worlds. I don't know. The screenwriters I know suffer very similarly to how the poets I know suffer. Like, yeah, it's yeah. a funny joke, but yeah, that's the, hard the, too. the success is the biggest distinction there. Totally. And yeah. success is entirely arbitrary. Yeah. So I think that Don Dorland could have easily won this Boston Reads NEA grant with some of the stuff that she wrote on Facebook, but she didn't. Sonia Larson did. I, I have no idea if Somerset Mom's friends were all trash writers. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of his, but like, yeah. I'm sure some of his friends could have been successful. The pornographers and the uh, film 
makers are all failures in, in the Jocelyn, in the Joycelyn Traeger story. Martin Amos's story, they're all sort of assholes and failures and frauds. And in my own world, I certainly know that I have seen Friends novels far better than the two novels I've written uh, that were published, my novels. Uh, I've seen novels far better than that not be published, not even find agents. You know, I my best work is not my published work. Like I, I, I've seen people dedicate their life to to art who don't get to call themselves artists because they haven't, you know, they don't have the record contract or they don't have the the major publication press. And I, I sort of think it's it's a lot of it is just happenstance and and luck and like obvious hard work and determination and and like I'm only talking about the people who after they learn to like put sentences together in some vague way and like have a sense of what a novel should be. But once you get to that 20 or 50 or 10 or five or 1% of the people, we're still talking about thousands and thousands of people and distinction among these people, I think is the big mistake that mom and Amos and everyone who discusses about the bad art friend makes and that Tom Dish doesn't really make. From one, one perspective, I totally agree. And, and it confirms a, a suspicion I've long held, which is that it's not so much that art is amoral as that like making art is amoral. The other hand, you, you sound a little bit like, do you know, um, there's this like obscure philosophical school called the Myriological Nihilists. You've never this? heard of the Myriological Nihilists. Myri or however, it, whatever, however it's broken down, it comes from, I think, the Greek word for part but myriological nihilists are basically people who say there is no such thing as chairs there is only there are only chair-shaped collections of atoms which feels a little bit like like once you once you like dismantle all of the components of what we call being an artist then like it starts to resemble just like a bunch of a bunch of a pile of like elements and, and, and happenstances as, as does everything else. But I, where I, I do think like, I really, I really am in agreement with you is that I, I think, I think you're totally right. Like there's not really a meaningful difference between being an artist and being a, a non-artist or like what we would say, like a poet versus a poetaster um, or just somebody who doesn't even bother with art at all. I don't think there's any real meaningful difference in, in like those lives I think that the difference is that there is such a thing as art and like sometimes and like, I mean, cause the other, then the other analog of course is, is as we talked about uh, another time was the moon and sixpence, which is a story about a, a guy who makes really wonderful art, but along the way is a really horrible person. And in fact, only one person in his life who is himself a kind of a failed artist uh, actually recognizes the value of his work and responds to it. Otherwise, nobody in his life even really does any of the good things or bad things that happen to him have nothing to do with his, his art. And it's only after the fact that everybody acknowledges that he made art that was worthwhile, but during the, or over the course of his life, he did nothing but cause pain to those around him. So like th- that feels similar to these stories in that there's sort of no meaningful, like art doesn't even like making good art doesn't redeem a shitty life. It's just another thing that is true adjacent to it, but it is still a thing that's true. Like, I don't think there's a difference between artists and non-artists, but I do think there's a difference between art and non-art, I guess. I agree with that. Where I am pressing, I think, is the validity of a 
of, of sort of the, the concept of a successful artist. Oh, yeah. Where it seems as though mom is saying all of these people thought they were artists, but they weren't because they didn't have the inspiration and the talent to make them successful artists. So really they were frauds. And I think part of the joy of reading The Bad Art Friend is that we are able to similarly say, these people think they're artists, but really these assholes are frauds. And I'm not discounting the possibility of an artist existing. I, I don't, as, as you say, once you break that down too far, it becomes uh, uninteresting. I, I'm, I'm interested in our instinct through mom and everyone who reads The Bad Art Friend and Amos in differentiating between people who are true artists and people who aren't. Right. And I think in the Joycelyn Schrager story, we have a pretty good argument for the fact that no one's a true artist or we're all true artists or, or something like that. Whereas mom is resting his case on the implication or on the assertion that there are true artists and non-true artists. And right. bad art friend, who is the bad art friend and all the discussion around it is so joyful because we can dismiss both of these women as not true artists. Where, uh, you know, Martin Amos, similarly, we're sort of thinking about the absurdity of like a screenwriter isn't a true artist, but maybe the poet isn't even a true artist also. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying that like, to me, Tom Ditch is the only one who has this right, that like the concept of being a true artist or not is ridiculous. I, the, the, so it's funny because the, the moment that most leapt out to me in the bad art, art front was the this moment when so Dorland has been protesting to people that that Sonia Larson stole her her Facebook post, which again I just think is, is totally acceptable. It's totally fine to do artist, artistically. But there was a moment when she this came out and she showed the original, she showed the text of the story and the text of her original Facebook post to her husband, and it said her husband who had been suggesting that well maybe it you know maybe it was it was close but maybe it's not that big deal he's just the only thing he's quoted as saying in the whole story is oh and the, the implications that he sees the the the, the closeness and the, the actual verbatim copying of, of the letter and he he realizes that the the plagiarism was indeed plagiarism the way i read that oh though was the oh of oh i see that this is what our life is going to be now that like, oh, there's not going to be any way around this. Like we are going, we're, we're going to pursue this indefinitely. And I mean, to, to me, like the big question for Don Dorland was not, I mean, she clearly, it was clearly, clearly, clearly a case to me of like mean girls being mean to a loser girl. And like, you know, and, and like she was all, but like also like the loser girl can often be like an emotional vampire and a real drag to be around. But like the, the biggest distinction, the biggest like problem for her was she wasn't writing. Like it wasn't so Dorland much to me, Dorland wasn't. Like it wasn't so much right. to me a matter of of like right. her writing hadn't been successful where Sonia Larson's was or like her story about giving a kidney wasn't, like she hadn't, even when people said like, well, why don't you write a story about donating a kidney? She she wasn't writing. Like that's the thing that which made her not be a writer. She wasn't writing stories. Right, which is the big difference between Dawn Dorland 
in terms of her putting her medical history out there and a writer such as Porachista Kakpur putting her medical right, history yeah, out yeah. there. Um, because Porachista Kakpur is a wonderful writer and a uh, very successful writer within the realm of, you know, su successful um, critically. And I think her last book did well, but she also uses social media as a place to, like Dawn Dorland uh, did, get public um, affirmation for mm -hmm. difficult personal, sometimes medical, other times other pain. Yeah. And it, I think it's easy for a lot of people to dismiss Porachista Kakpur's use of social media as unattractively needy and performative. But I think she is protected by the fact that she has turned a lot of those same instincts and same outrages in, in her own life into successful commercially and artistically successful art. Whereas Dawn Dorland didn't do that second part. In our age of, you know, people who have whole careers based on nothing but their social media presence, I think like the other thing that, that redeems Portisa Kakpur's um, exposure of her, her medical trials is is also that she is followed by many people on social media and is photogenic and it's like th like that's that the, the, it's a successful social media campaign in addition and maybe right. and that's tied it's, in that's tied right. into her fiction career her writing career as well i'm sure i, I realize right. now as it, you're saying it that, that, is it is a success in and of itself yeah. you're saying yeah, like yeah as yeah. a as a, as a social media move right. it's a successful social media move even if it is sincere and aching and you know uh on, on one hand or if it were i don't think it is but if it were crass and cynical regardless in play that is working maybe it's working yeah. because it, it joins together a bunch of similarly suffering people and gives them an outlet with which to articulate their pain or maybe it's working because it gains for more readers but putting her pain out there uh, to the public is is successful in some way for uh, Porchista Kakpur in a way yes. it is not for Dawn Dorland. Right. And I would even say that, you know, I, I don't know the particulars, but I could imagine that like for Porchista Kakpur, maybe because of when she came into the whole game and, and maybe because of whatever other reasons, she's to, she's committed to writing. So the writing for her is is always going to be the end but like, who knows, like if she were to devote all the time and energy she gives, she gives to writing instead to further, you know, expanding and deepening her social media presence, like that might well be a more lucrative career. The only meaningful definition of an artist is that you're just someone who's making art, good, bad, or otherwise, like you have to be making it. Like, and in fact, like, I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I cringe to, to apply a noun, like poet or artist or writer or whatever to myself, but it certainly only ever feels accurate in the moment in which I'm making something. Like if I go a week, say, without writing, I mean, good Lord, then like the last thing I would ever think of myself as is a writer. Which, uh, to circle back to where we started, is the flaw of that non-joke joke about the heaven and hell being the same, but in heaven you publish and in hell you don't. Whereas I find those moments when I can stop procrastinating and get my kids out of the room and clear some mental space where I actually feel as though I am producing something of some intrinsic value being um, some of the, the, the few truly pleasurable moments of my life. Yeah. That it can be in, in 
terrible. I mean, it, it can be painful and awful, and it usually is. Yeah. But both heaven and hell in that joke would include moments of excitement and flow and bliss and, and whatever else that I get for five minutes in every thousand that I write. I think the, the truer version of your joke would be the this would still be like the demons lashing them and it would still be like sitting at the chain to the desks with the typewriters but they would not be writing their novels they would be writing query letters um exactly that's the difference as you and i and i assume many people listening to this know that phase of having a manuscript sent out and waiting constantly for and amos does a good job of, of this actually yeah, 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 yeah. it's when i really feel like he is um empathizing with a writer it's when the uh, screenwriter has sent out this these manuscripts and are waiting for a letter. And I mean, I've, I've been, especially for the, the early novels that I wrote that were agented but not published, when my agent went out with, with my um, manuscript to, you know, the 30 some odd um, editors, and then I entered a three plus month period of my life where I was just waiting for emails every day, yeah. um, emails to come in. And oh, then mystery. over weekends, knowing I had a brief respite, his emails wouldn't come in. And then, you know, I think in the Amos story, uh, the screenwriter even buys the journal uh, with this fantasy that right. maybe without telling him it. as a surprise <laughs> it was published. Like, I remember having instincts like that as well. Like, maybe the reason my agent hasn't gotten back to me is because the auction is, has gotten, you know, on its way. Yeah. But that, those three, four months of waiting for emails that never come, and then when they come, they are rejections. And then the combination of the rejections and the time waiting means it's decreasingly likely. And then you just keep waiting and waiting and waiting and yeah. have just bad news until there's no more news left. The, that is a specific type of anguish that is as close to hell as anything I've ever experienced. Yeah. And I've experienced that at, it at three or four distinct times in my life when my agent has gone out with novels that weren't picked up. Um, and each time I remember thinking, talking to my wife, like she's saying like, you are just so miserable. Like, should you stop doing this maybe? Yeah. And my answer was at the time, like, which is the worst misery? Like this right. cycle where every three years I have these three months of horrible misery or, or I give it up and it's just, I failed at doing it. And that was, I think, a version of my, my response to you when you first sent me that mom piece was, you know, he said that people had been unfitted for a more humdrum calling. And so they had no choice, but to, you know, to either to become teachers or journalists or something else. And, and I think you said, I'm, I'm a fraud. And, and my response was like, well, we're all frauds, but like some of us, I think some of us are, are I said, I said, some of us are artists too. I, may, I might, and I might modify that now to say like, well, we're all frauds, but like some of us also write books and, right. and there's, and at this point we don't have a choice at this point. Like we, we, it would be intolerable to stop writing whether or exactly. not anything comes of it. So we are going to keep writing. And uh, maybe they're not even writing query letters now. Maybe they're just clicking refresh on their email inbox. <laughs> like for the pill ones in heaven, the answer pops up. <laughs> God. That's the real joke. That was my conversation with Brian. 
You can hear him, uh, <laughs> you can hear him, you can uh, find him very frequently and, and hear him pretty often on this silly podcast. He has come back, He's he's been here a few times before and will surely come back again. By the way, his audio was a little choppy this week, uh, but just after our conversation, he ordered a microphone. So next time you hear from him, his voice should be silky smooth and he will have no technical difficulties to blame for his lack of eloquence and general charmlessness. Uh, thank you as always for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.